Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be exploring the latest trends in singlehood. So how are today's singles approaching sex, love, and relationships? What do they really want? And how has this changed over time? We're going to be exploring results from the 11th annual Singles in America survey. Match surveyed more than 5,000 singles in the United States, ranging in age from 18 to 98. Their data provide an inside look at modern sex and dating, as well as how the COVID-19 pandemic has shifted the landscape. We're going to talk about all of this and more, including why people are now sending fewer dick pics, how to go on more successful video dates, and whether the three-date rule is really a thing. I am joined by Dr. Helen Fisher, a biological anthropologist, senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and chief scientific advisor at Match. She has conducted extensive research and has written six books on the evolution and future of human sex, love, and marriage, and how your personality style shapes who you are and who you love. She is currently using her knowledge of brain chemistry to discuss the neuroscience of business leadership and innovation. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's dive right in. Hi, Helen, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'm delighted to be with you, Justin. It's a good topic. It's an evergreen topic. <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> Nobody gets out alive either. <laughs> yes, we've all been there at some point or another, and some of us have spent more time there than others. So thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to see you again. Now, before we dive into results from the Singles in America survey, can you please just tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your professional background? So how did you get into studying the science of sex and love in the first place? What is it that drew you to this area? It's so interesting, Justin, because most people would think, oh, I had a bad relationship in teenage and that was it for me. But it was very different. I'm an identical twin and I'm a baby boomer. And so when I went to graduate school, uh, I, all of my classes, they were absolutely convinced that all behavior was learned, that the mind was an empty slate in which environment inscribed personality. And I remember trying writing various essays and saying that when I knew it wasn't true, I knew because I'm an identical twin that there had to be some biology to behavior because I spent my life watching. I mean, my twin sister and I like the same kind of food. We like the same kind of jokes. We like the same kind of boys. We have the same sorts of interests. And it, it just wasn't just our family growing up. I figured it was biology too. So anyway, when it came time to write my PhD dissertation, I thought to myself, okay, if there's any part of human behavior that would have to have a biological substrate, a biological origin, it would be our reproductive patterns. Because as you know well, Darwin would have said, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. It's all about having babies that send your DNA into tomorrow. So I figured there would be very a heavy selection for the kind of people that courted in certain ways, that fell in love in certain ways, who formed an attachment in order to raise their young. So I really went into studying sex and love and marriage 
in my belief that if there was any anything in the brain that would have evolved, it would have been our mating patterns. And this is what drew me to even putting people in brain scanners. I, I'm sure you know that, you know, I and my colleagues are the first in the world to put people in brain scanners and study the brain circuitry for romantic love and attachment. And in fact, when I wrote my first academic article on this, one of the four peer reviewers said, oh, you can't study that. That's part of the supernatural. And I thought to myself, hang on here. Fear is not part of the supernatural. Anger is not part of the supernatural. Why would this huge feeling that we all have be part of the supernatural? So bottom line is, um, I think it stems from being an identical twin. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And you've done a lot of amazing research that have helped us to understand so many different aspects of sex, love, and relationships. So we appreciate your contributions to the field. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about some of this work that you were involved in with Match, looking at what it's like to be single today. Now, since the 1970s, the number of American adults living single has risen significantly. More people are single today than they were in the past. And the marriage rate is also at or near a record low, and people who are getting married are waiting much longer than they were before. And there are all kinds of reasons behind these shifts, but the fact that singlehood has risen so much makes it this really important thing to study. So let's start by looking at what singles want in a partner and how that has changed over time. One of the key results to come out of the new Singles in America survey is that there's been a drop in the number of singles saying that physical attractiveness is key, but a rise in the number of people who say that they want a partner who is emotionally mature. And that's not to say that physical attractiveness is no longer important and people don't care about looks anymore. Certainly they do. Most singles say physical attractiveness is still important to them. But what do you think accounts for this shift away from looks and toward more personality and emotional maturity? In one word, COVID. You (laughs) You cannot lock up, you cannot stop a planet for one year and stick a whole lot of singles in their bedroom without having them begin to think about what they have, what they don't have, what they want, and how they're going to get it. And in fact, in this, it's an actually, Justin, I ne- I've never used this word before, not in 40 years, but this is an historic, an historic change. I mean, what I've really seen in this most recent Singles in America study by Match and me and Justin Garcia is what I call post-traumatic growth singles are growing up. You know, just like you said, singles today are one third of the American population. And one thing I just want to make sure your audience knows is this annual study that I do with Match, we do not poll the Match members. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. Census. So it really is science. And that's probably why you want to talk to me anyway, because you're a scientist. (laughs) But the bottom line is uh, every year, we cook up about 200 questions and we get, we poll the public uh, representative sample. And this year, that's exactly what we found. We found that singles are really looking for emotional maturity. Now, just like you said, they always have. But what's remarkable is that it's much more important now than physical attractiveness. I mean, we've done this study for 11 years. We've got data on 55,000 singles. And every year we do a little more than 5,000 singles. But the bottom line is this year they've grown up. We're looking for something different. I mean, physical attractiveness has always been important. 
but it's less important now. And I would say that if there's one thing in this study that was most telling, it was one particular question, which was, do you want a partner who wants to get married? And every other year since then, we just compared that to 2019, right before the pandemic. In 2019, 58% of singles wanted a partner who wanted to marry. That's just a little over half. Now, 76% of singles want a partner who wants to marry. That is an enormous 18% change, absolutely enormous. And uh, I think it bodes very well for the future of the family. I think that what we're going to see is people settling down. They've grown up, particularly millennials, you know, over uh, almost 70% of them are now working on their career. They say they're better at managing their money. They say they're better at managing their time. The singles now say they've got more sleep. They're better at relaxing. They're better at caring for their mental health and their physical health. And by God, 55% of them say they're better at unplugging at social media. But the bottom line is they're trying now, they're focusing on who they are. They've always been doing that, but even more now and even more now. They want a long-term, solid partnership. We may be looking forward to about uh, a few decades of relative family stability just because this enormous trend towards fewer and fewer people marrying, I think is going to switch. Yeah, and I will be fascinated to see what the future holds there because I think there is this potential for you know, as we've seen in recent decades for the number of singles to keep rising, I think it's quite possible that we might see that start receding in the years ahead and that more people may partner up and start living together. And so, you know, it'll be fascinating to watch what these trends start to look like. Absolutely. You know, I wrote an academic article called Slow Love, Fast Sex. And I'm beginning to think it might be fast love, slow sex. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, we have found for years that people are marrying later and later. I mean, that's a big part of the fact that we have so many singles and they are divorcing and remarrying. So people are settling down. They're just doing it much later and they're doing it several times instead of just once. But, you know, in my day in the 60s and 70s, I mean, people married in their early 20s. Now they're married in their late 20s or even early 30s. We're seeing this long, this 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 um, long pre-commitment stage in the courtship process. And in many respects, I think that's very healthy. You get to know yourself. You get to know who others are. You get to learn how to get rid of what you don't like before you marry and have children with them and then divorce. And all of the data shows, not only in America, but around the world, that the longer you court and the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain together. You know, I, I not only do I do this with Match, but I've looked at marriage and divorce in 80 cultures through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations. And everywhere in the world, the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain together. So the question becomes to me, I mean, we now see that now they're looking to get married. Will they marry faster? Or will they just court longer with a serious relationship and still marry later? I don't know the answer, but if I had to guess, I would guess that they're still going to to have a long courtship period and still marry later, but they're going to start their relationships sooner in the courtship process. 
Yeah. And I think that that trend, that pattern makes a lot of sense. And we won't know the answer until we actually see the data, but I am very curious to see where things go. Now, another shift we see in the data is openness to a wider range of partners than people were open to before. So for example, seven in 10 singles said they're open to the idea of dating someone of a different race or ethnicity. And 50% of young singles said they're open to the idea of a long distance relationship. Now, the interracial dating piece is worth noting because something I think a lot of people don't realize is that it wasn't until the early 1990s that more Americans approved than disapproved of interracial dating for the very first time. So this is a very recent phenomenon. And even back then, in the early 90s, the approval rating was only 48% compared to 42% disapproving. So singles today are more open to dating people of different backgrounds and people who don't necessarily even live geographically close to them. So why do you think that is? And to what extent do you think it's the product of online dating simply presenting people with a much wider range of options than they would otherwise have available? Well, first of all, in the last 11 years, we really have seen singles be less and less scared of of going out with somebody from a different ethnic and racial group. We've seen that all along. I mean, people are just widening their net. And of course, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement and a great deal of more understanding in the last few years. And we also see more people of different ethnic groups on TV. And and we're also meeting a lot of people from different ethnic groups. And I do think that we're going to see more and more of that. And yes, I do think that the internet dating has, has helped with that. And also the amount of, I mean, so many people of different ethnic groups are rising into the middle class, are going to college. And so you meet them. And you see them. So I think we will see more and more inter-ethnic partnerships. I mean, we're seeing them now on the stage, when we go to the theater, when we go to the opera, when we go to the symphony, you know, people writing books, people in college, people in couples on the street, etc. So, you know, we've probably gone over a tipping point. And I think that's it. But in terms of the other thing you mentioned, the fact that more people are spreading their wings and wanting to meet people who are from a longer distance, this is new. We've asked that question for years. For During the 11 years of this Match.com Singles in America study, we've regularly asked that question. It's a trend question. And they have not previously wanted to go out with somebody who lived more than about three hours away. Because they want somebody next door. They really would like somebody in the neighborhood. I mean, you got to do a lot of traveling and you've got to, somebody's got to move for their job, et cetera. I mean, uh, but that has changed. And I do think that has to do with the COVID pandemic. The fact that now, okay, now I'm serious. And now I want somebody. And I'm willing to make some adjustments in, my, in what I'm looking for in order to find the right person. So everybody's gotten scared. And along with that, they are willing to move farther away from their their opinions. But what's interesting is what it's millennials and men who are the most likely to be eager to find somebody of a different ethnic group. That's not new, but also most likely to spread their wings and try and find somebody from who's a long distance relationship. And of course, maybe that's also with the rise of the internet where you can, you know, spend the time with somebody on the internet. I mean, 10 years ago, that wasn't very easy to do. Now you can cook dinner together, you know, even though you live on different planets, (laughs) you know. In fact, I once did a, I was once on television actually with a, a woman, I think it was, who wrote a book about not only long distance relationships, but being married to a truck driver. 
who's gone all the time. And some of the things that they now do in order to really stay in touch. And one guy apparently even hooked up a camera next to his wife's bed to just to watch her sleep. Now, they trusted each other. This wasn't a peeping Tom kind of thing. He just wanted to be there sort of in the room to watch her sleep. And and they would have, you know, dinners together through the Internet and drinks and probably even sex. I didn't ask. And that's part of it. But I really think it's basically the pandemic. The people are broadening what they're looking for because now they want to settle down. I also wonder with the long distance piece, if part of why people are more open to it is because they've developed a greater sense of independence during this really unique and challenging period of time. And something I've seen in some of my own research that I've conducted is that if you look at singles specifically, you see that about one third of singles say that they're happier being single than they were before. Another third say they're less happy. And then another third say that nothing has really changed. But I think what that says is that you've got a significant number of singles who learned to be more self-reliant and maybe that they didn't need, say, a live-in relationship partner as much as they did before. And so they're more open to the idea of a long-distance relationship where they might have or might be able to continue to have that sort of greater sense of independence. So I think that would be a fascinating thing to look at in the research going forward. If people do start more long-distance relationships, what are their motivations for it? And does that help people to better meet, say, their needs for autonomy? I think those are the two big issues. I mean, I think the human brain is craves two things, craves connection and intimacy and also craves autonomy. I mean, and, and we all have to measure those two things uh, throughout the course of our lives. I mean, when you think about it, for millions of years, we lived in these little hunting and gathering groups and, and women went gathering. Sometimes they'd be gone for two weeks to go to another group and, and see friends and men would go hunting and maybe be gone for three days. I mean, we really weren't built for 24-7 living on top of each other. And I do think that more people have realized that, well, I think just like you said, one third really realize they they don't want to spend the rest of their lives in their bedroom by themselves and so those are going to move in and stay together whereas others are going to build in different kinds of partnerships now for example me i got married last year at age 75 if you can believe it but anyway i got married last year and what we're doing is lat living apart together and he's a very well-known journalist and he, he works all the time he's a writer like me and he's got an apartment in the Bronx in New York, and I got an apartment in New York. Mine's way too small for him to move in. So the bottom line is two or three days a week, I'm in my apartment doing my work, going out with my girlfriends at night, talk to him all the time, would never consider cheating on him, crazy about him. He loves those nights by himself. He eats pizza. I don't like pizza. Uh, he watches some TV I'm not interested in. He sits and reads all night, and I want to roll in the streets of New York and see my girlfriend. So I think that more and more people before the pandemic uh, are coming to realize, you know, I can build the kind of relationship that I want. I don't need the cookie cutter thing of 24-7 in the same place. But I don't think we'll ever lose our, our drive to love. You know, I've put these over 100 people in a brain scanner and the drive to love, it, it's a drive, by the way. It's not an emotion. It comes out of the most basic parts of the brain in a little factory that pumps out dopamine and gives you that focus and motivation and craving for somebody. And in fact, that little factory lies right next to the factory, the hypothalamus, that um, orchestrates thirst and hunger. 
I mean, thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love drives you to form a partnership with somebody and send your DNA into tomorrow. So I call it a survival mechanism. It is. And whether you make it a long-distance relationship, whether you have a very standard kind of partnerships, no two partnerships are alike, but they're, they will move in and live together. And of course, having small children makes a difference. You want your partner around for that. Um, but what's so beautiful, and I think you really touched on this, is that we're now at a time in human evolution where we can build the kinds of relationships that work for us. And I do think the pandemic, just like you said, is opening up people to the possibility of saying, I get it now. I can live by myself. I And by the way, one of the things that we found is that 56% of singles now say that they've gained self-confidence during this pandemic, gained self-confidence. And as I said, you know, they've figured out how to manage their time and their money, and they're looking carefully at their careers. I mean, we've grown up, but once again, it's this post-traumatic growth. I mean, Cupid has conquered COVID. It, I mean, I hate to say it was a horrible experience for everybody, but we've come out actually oddly more mature because of it. Yeah. And I think it's so true. We do live in this time of designer relationships and you can craft the relationship that is right for you. And I knew people even before the pandemic who were doing this. You know, for example, I have some friends who are a couple and they both have their own home in the same neighborhood. And, you know, so that's like a lot of square footage within the same neighborhood, but they have their own space. And when they go on vacation, they get their own separate hotel rooms. Oh, and it's wow. because they like to have their own personal space and they have a great relationship. They've been together for a really long time, but that's the situation that works for them. Wow. And, you know, to a lot of people on the outside, they say, well, that seems like it's not intimate or, you know, it doesn't strike them as the typical relationship, but it doesn't matter what typical is. What matters is what works for you and finding a relationship style and a way of making relationships work that you all can be comfortable with. Well, first of all, do you mind if I borrow your concept of designer relationships? <laughs> it's a really good yeah. term. <laughs> uh, so if you're okay with that one, I'm taking that. The other thing is that I would... I personally want to share the bedroom when I'm on a vacation with my husband. <laughs> so to each his own on that matter. But what you really touched on here is something is how important, whatever the designer, whatever kind of relationship you do, relationships are important. A, a, a positive relationship. There's new data. People who are, are in a happy pair bonded relationship actually it slows the aging process. Uh, they live five to seven years longer. But also, a positive relationship, it lowers blood pressure, cholesterol, cortisol, the stress hormone. It sustains a memory mood. When you get hugs from a partner, it drives up the oxytocin system and gives a sense of calm and attachment. And laughter drives up the dopamine system and gives you energy and optimism and focus and motivation. It also boosts the immune system. It's good for brain growth. And um, it even boosts the endorphins uh, and increases the uh, pain threshold. So, you know, we were built to form partnerships, often sometimes serial partnerships, a series of them, but we are built to love. And this um, dreadful pandemic has gotten us more serious about it. Yeah. 
Now, something else that came out of this survey that I find interesting, and I think it makes sense in light of what we've been talking about, which is that interest in casual sex and casual dating seems to be on the decline, and singles are more likely to say they're looking for meaningful, committed relationships. And this coincides with some changes in how they're approaching dating. So for example, 51% of singles said that they're spending more time and effort crafting thoughtful messages on dating apps, right? So they're putting a bit more effort into how they're approaching dating. They're not just saying, hey, what's up? You know, they're taking some time to, to kind of figure out a way of meaningfully connecting with another person. And related to that, the nature of the courtship process is changing too. So you have a lot of singles who are going on video dates first before they meet in person. And a majority of singles in this survey said that they'd be more comfortable going on an actual date with somebody if they had a video chat first. And I think this makes sense. You know, video dating is a way of minimizing risk during a global pandemic. It's also a way that you can save money because dating can be very expensive. And it's also a way of avoiding bad dates because, you know, we've all been there with awkward dates and, you know, with a video date, you can kind of get out of it a little easier. But video dating is something that most of us don't really have a lot of experience with. We're not used to it. It's a new form of dating. So do you have any thoughts or ideas on how you can more effectively navigate the world of video dating? And, you know, how do you create chemistry with somebody when you're not physically there in the room with them? It's easy. I mean, this is a brain system. It's like a sleeping cat. You know, it could be awakened at any time. I mean, you know, you can be scared just looking at a movie in a movie house. You know, you can be uh, angry when you read a text from somebody. You don't need to see them in order to trigger any of these basic brain systems. But you really touch something. This is a new stage in the courtship process, video dating. And last year, 2020, when we asked about 19% of singles had gone on a video date. Now, this year, 27% have gone on a video date. And that's a huge increase, particularly because there's a lot of singles in the world who don't want to go on any dates. So it's an enormous thing. And just like you said, it's practical. Sex is off the table. You don't have to decide whether you're going to kiss and hug. You know, money's off the table. You don't have to decide. And you can decide whether you want to go out with this person. And so it's saving a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of stress. And what we've asked people is, you know, how is it different? And as it turns out, what they end up saying, a huge percent of them say, well, we ended up having more meaningful conversations. We spent more time talking before we went out. We did more self-disclosure, more honesty and transparency. Apparently, looks has become less important. It's now more important to that the person has a, a full-time employment and is financially stable. And when we asked this year, these 27% of people who went on a video date, did you feel any chemistry? And 78% said yes. And 34% said they thought that they could fall in love over a video date. That, I think, is low. I think that eventually when people realize that this is just a basic brain system, they're going to be eagerly say, oh, yeah, I think I could fall in love over a video date. What's interesting about that, you asked about, well, how can you do a better job? at it. Well, first of all, do it. I mean, just start there. I mean, for God's sakes, because it's very valuable to see somebody and to hear their voice, to see the way they respond when you say something, to see the way they smile and use their body, see the way they're dressed. And they're using it as a vetting thing. I mean, you can get rid of the date without getting all dressed up, going out, spending your money, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're going to have 
better, fewer first dates, because people will get rid of what they don't want before the date, but much more comfortable first date, much less awkward first date, because you've already decided, yeah, I would like to go and spend my money. I really would like to kiss and hug, maybe. I, I trust this person now. I know the person better. So I think that's important. But we did learn one very interesting thing. Millennials, people in their 20s and early 30s, and Gen Z, are 10 times more sensitive about the person's background. And it's pretty easy to to figure out why from a Darwinian perspective. I mean, what singles are trying to do is they're, they're looking for any tips <laughs> on who this person, anything they can tell about the person. And if they look like a complete slob and the background is just, you know, totally undecorated, like a hotel room or something or or completely messy or, you know, got the, you discover that they got 10 birds in bird cages and 15 cats on their shoulders and this and that, you might think, well, I mean, I have to love cats myself, but the bottom line is 10 of them might be a much. So if you're going to go on video dates, get yourself decently dressed. Do a decent background. And I would do a real background. Some of these people, you know, you can go and choose fake backgrounds, but that really is a disguise in many ways. I'd pick a real background. I'd make it quiet. I'd uh, get decently dressed. And the problem is when you first start to date somebody, you have so little information that you overweight the few things that you know about them. Now, that could be good. They tell one good joke and you assume they're going to be funny for the rest of their lives. Well, it may have been a lucky moment for them. (laughs) But bottom line is, you know, I mean, I've seen people say, oh, well, he likes cats and I like dogs. So it can't happen. Forget it. Think of reasons to say yes, you know, but go on that video day before you go on the first date so that you know what you're doing on that day. Yeah, I I think that's good advice about putting some effort into video dating. You know, just because you don't have to leave your home for it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still treat it like a date of, of some sort. Because if you're not putting much effort into it, there's the potential for the other person to perceive that as a lack of interest or effort. And they might make other sorts of attributions about you as well. So, you know, it's just something that's worth thinking about and approaching, you know, in the same way that you're going to approach any other date. And we do know that video dates can work. You know, as you said, a lot of people feel romantic chemistry just through that online connection. And so I think that also speaks to the fact that it's important to put a little effort in because you might get something really great out of it. You might get life's greatest prize out of it. I mean, this is this is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the lazy. I mean, you may get an extra seven years of your life because you found yourself a, a partnership that is happy. Yeah, definitely. So we have much more to discuss, including why dick pics declined during the pandemic and how many people subscribed to the three date rule. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASEC sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. If you're recording a podcast, you need the most reliable and high-quality recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. It's easy to use, and you're going to love the results. 
Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. Looking to boost your bedroom game? Promescent is here to help you have better sex. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. They also have a female arousal gel, lubricants, Vitaflux supplements, and so much more. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. I'm speaking with biological anthropologist, Dr. Helen Fisher. Now, we talked earlier about how interest in casual sex among singles has started to wane to some degree, and that has coincided with some interesting changes in sexual behavior on dating apps, and that includes a decline in people sending dick pics. And specifically, about one-third of singles say that they're sending fewer nude photos now than they were before. So I'm curious to hear your take on that, because on the one hand, it might be due in part to this shift away from casual sex and toward more interest in long-term committed relationships, but it might also be due in part to the Me Too movement and people rethinking their online sexual behaviors. So what do you think is up with the decrease in dick pics? I think it, it, it's everything that you just said, Justin, but I think it's also something else that's very important. During this pandemic, close contact with somebody could kill you. So this issue of any kind of sex with somebody has become much more important. And what is a dick pic? But it is an invitation to sex. By the way, women send an awful lot of pictures themselves, too. It's not just men. And and when you ask men about the dick pic, a lot of them say she asked me for it, too. So it's not just men. It's women as well. I think the biggest thing here is that sex has now become equated with, with the possibility of, of real physical disease. And anything that's going to be associated with that, uh, it can be a real threat. I mean, I'm not surprised that 73% of singles have gotten vaccinated, as opposed to 64% of the of the general population. And what are they doing from a Darwinian perspective? What they're doing, they're advertising, I'm healthy, I can't kill you. But they're also advertising, I'm a member of the community, I'm respecting the rules. I'm not, I'm, I got vaccinated not only for me, but for everybody else too. And when you send a dick pic, you're not advertising that you're healthy and you're not advertising that you follow the rules of vaccination. You're basically going with some, some old strategies of, of appeal. And I think we will continue to see fewer and fewer dick pics among people who don't know each other very well. I think once you start to have sex with somebody, once you're in love with somebody, that's the kind of thing that people do. So that doesn't surprise me. But what's interesting to me is when we asked, you know, we collected this match uh, singleton American data this past summer when people were still very scared of the of the variant, et cetera. And we found that something like 58 percent of singles will not have sex with somebody who's not vaxxed. 54% will not start a romance and 52% won't even go out on a first date. And 48% regard somebody who's not vaxxed as selfish. So if you're sending a dick pic or a picture of you lying around with nothing on, uh, if you're a woman, you're not saying that you're following the rules anymore, you know. And so my guess is that uh, we'll see fewer and fewer dick pics for quite a while now. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting take on it is that the way that people are expressing themselves and the way that they are essentially sort of promoting themselves on dating apps is different. And you do see, you know, vax for vax and, you know, sort of the language that people are using to convey that I am a safe person. And I think it's very clear, it's very palpable if you're on dating apps to know that people are less interested in casual sex than they were before and opportunities are limited. And so, you know, how do you make somebody else feel safe and comfortable and you know, want to be interested in either sex or dating or relationships. And so, you know, that changes the calculation when it comes to how you present yourself and how you navigate the world of online dating. So I agree that there's definitely a lot of stuff going on there. Vax or Vax, another great line by you. That's a wonderful one. I had not even heard that. I want to say something about you, Justin. You know, I do a lot of conversations with people, but you've done your homework. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I do try to do my homework whenever I do a podcast. <laughs> so another finding from the survey that I thought was really interesting was the fact that single men were more likely than single women to say that they're ready for a long-term relationship. So specifically, 42% of men said they're ready for long-term love compared to 29% of women. And I think this gender pattern runs contrary to what many people might have expected. So why do you think that is? Why do men seemingly now appear to be more interested in starting long-term relationships than women. Women are the picky sex. They've always been the picky sex. We found this for 11 years, and you as a psychologist, I'm sure you know all that literature, that women are the picky sex. I mean, for good Darwinian reasons. I mean, you know, these are the women are going to build that baby for nine months and go through childbirth. And everywhere in the world, women spend more time with very young children. So the bottom line is women are the picky sex. But I think that actually, this did not surprise me, that men are much more likely to be ready right now to form a long-term relationship. We don't understand men in this culture. I'm not sure we understand them in any culture. But uh, there's a great deal of psychological data, and we've certainly seen it every single year in the Match Singles in America study, that men uh, fall in love faster than women do. They fall in love more often than women do. When they meet somebody that they fall in love with, they want to introduce them to friends and family sooner. That may be mate guarding, that ethological term. Men want to move in sooner. Men have more intimate conversations with their partners than women do because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends. So the bottom line is men are the more fragile sex. I mean, this is not, not part of our match data, but you know, men are also two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So that particular thing didn't surprise. It surprises everybody else. All of these you know, relationship gurus and, and all these women's, women's magazines, they're dedicated to the idea that women are the romantics and that men are the, you know, the toxic masculinity. It's just absurd. Men love we put them in the brain scanner, it's exactly the same brain system become active when men love as when women love. And so this didn't surprise me, but it certainly surprises the media. And I'm, I'm dying to tell more people, and I hope all, your, all the people listening to you spread the word. Men are romantic. And in this case, they're more ready now than women are to settle down. Didn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and I think it fits in well with an increasing 
amount of research I've seen on men's sexuality, which shows how much feeling desired and wanting intimate connection is important for men when it comes to having and developing healthy and satisfying relationships. Men have intimate needs too. And a lot of people just sort of dismiss them or assume that they aren't there because they're viewing men through this very gender stereotypical yeah. lens. Men know it. Don't you think men know it? Do you think men know it? That's a question to you. I, I mean, women don't know it. But I, I, I mean, every time I say any of this stuff, I mean, men, I see them nod their head and say, well, of course I'm in, I love. One, you know, really interesting thing that we got from a different year of these singles in America study was we asked about one night stands. Men are far more likely than women to go into a one night stand hoping to trigger a long term partnership. So we always think it's men are just, you know, kiss and run. But they're actually trying to use the one night stand to move the relationship forward. They're more likely to think that to use the one night stand as a way of getting her to like me and starting a partnership. Yeah. And I think the more we dive into all of the ways that men and women differ in the ways that we thought that they differ and then we look at what the data actually say we see that a lot of our expectations and stereotypes just don't hold up to scrutiny but i think something else that's going on here and i've I've seen some media reports about this where during the pandemic a lot of men realized how fragile and tenuous their friendships with other men were like with their buddies and the the people that they might go hang out at the bar with or whatever and they totally disappeared from their lives in a lot of ways and weren't checking in with them and so i think a lot of men really felt this lack of connection to anyone because they realized that their friendships weren't maybe as strong or as intimate as they were before yeah. and so i think that could potentially be another factor in terms of why men seem particularly interested in long-term relationships right now so i know we're short on time but i have one other question i wanted to get into with you which is about sex and dating. So we've all heard about the so-called three-date rule, which refers to the idea that the third date is supposedly the right time to start having sex with a new partner. And in the Singles in America survey, you found that most singles, about two and three, said that they would want to wait until after the third date to have sex, which would seem to support that idea. And I found something similar in a study I conducted this past summer, where I found that about one third of people who were currently single or dating said that sex is okay before the third date, but the other two thirds wanted to wait longer. But people were really all over the map because we let people write in how many dates they actually wanted to have. And you had some people saying zero, like, I don't need any dates. I'm just ready to have sex right now. And some people saying they wanted as many as a thousand dates. <laughs> so I'm curious for your take on this. When do you think is the right time to start having sex with a new partner? And how do you know what's right for you? Well, I think everybody's going to vary. I would say that what's most important is that you get to know the person and you trust them. Well, that they're not lying to you and that you want to move it forward as long as you know what you're doing. And, you know, I love this concept of DTR, define the relationship. I'm just crazy about millennials, frankly. I mean, they are really all these new terms for benching and ghosting. I mean, they are just dissecting romance. And, you know, they, this DTR, I mean, in my day, I wouldn't have dreamt of, of asking somebody early on in the partnership, where are we going? Millennials want to know. It's a very serious, impressive generation. And I think that they've had a, over a year to sit around and, and figure out what they want. <laughs> and I guess the right time to have sex is when everybody's ready for it. 
and it's going to vary from one person to another. I mean, some people talk for a year on video dating. They're probably ready on the first date. Other people, uh, you know, just met somebody in a bar and uh, they don't think they're going to do it for a while. And I, I mean, this it's so variable, Justin, that I that I wouldn't want to say that what's what's a cookie cutter idea on this one. But bottom line is, singles are getting to know themselves, and they're getting they they're they're having meaningful conversations with with these people with their potential partners. And they're going to work it out. They're going to be intelligent. Well, you know, I mean, we all do stupid things for God's sakes. But the bottom line is, the millennials are, are serious. I think they've come to know what they want. Uh, this post-traumatic growth, and, and they now have this new resource, video dating, to get to know somebody before they go out. And I think they're going to do some really intelligent dating. Yeah, and I think you're right when it comes to this idea of when is the right time to have sex, that there isn't one universal rule that we can apply to everyone. And so I always encourage people not to get hung up on the three-day rule or any other so-called rule about relationships because there are no one-size-fits-all rules and you have to do what is right for you. And when it comes to something like sex, if you're a have sex on the first date person or before the first date even happens, hey, that's fine. And if you're somebody who wants to wait a really long time or maybe even wait until marriage, you know, that's fine too. You have to do what is right for you. And sex should happen when everyone is comfortable with it happening and when people feel safe and secure and just ready to do it. So I think that that's just, you know, something to live by when it comes to relationships is you do you and don't feel too much pressure to subscribe to some arbitrary rules about sex and relationships. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Helen. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and read your amazing books? Oh, boy. This is so not- well, I've just gotten a new website, uh, HelenFisher.com. And I've got a sort of a teaching website, TheAnatomyOfLove.com. And then I've got uh, six books. The most recent is Anatomy of Love, second edition. And uh, gee, I guess you can find me in a lot of places on the internet. So anyway, I'm delighted to talk to you. It was truly a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, please visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.